Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, if you have not already done so. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're looking for that in the, the blue ESV Bibles and the seatbacks out there, you can find that on page 978. Ephesians 4, looking at verses 17 all the way through chapter 5, verse 2 this morning. And the title of our sermon is uh, just, it's a question like last week, what is a disciple? And the, the key words for our worshipers in training, so for our children to be listening for as I am preaching this morning, children, our, our key words for you are pretty simple today. It's just mind, desires, and will. So maybe have a, a sheet out. When you hear those words, you can make a little tick mark and that will help you to focus and then um, ask your parents about it later, about mind, desires, and will for discipleship. So Ephesians 4 will be in verse 17. Last week, we kicked off the new year with a new sermon series on the mission of the church, and in particular, the mission of this church. The main focus of this series is to clarify our convictions as a church about discipleship, because discipleship is, in a word, the mission of the church, as commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28. So a question that we need to make sure that we, we have a ready answer for, as, and I'm speaking primarily to the members of Redeemer Baptist Church, obviously, but why does Redeemer Baptist Church exist? Why, why are we a church? Right? Why have we gathered here in this place today as we do every Lord's Day and other days of the week sometimes? Why don't we all just go to other churches? There are countless churches in this world, in this country, in this state, and in this county, or Effingham, Chatty or, uh, Effingham County or Chatham County. Kind of blended those two words together there for a second. So Effingham or Chatham County. Why here, though? Why not one of those churches? We need to know why. And And a simple way to state that why is because we believe that God has called us together here at Redeemer Baptist Church in order that we might worship God with joy, that we might love our neighbors, that we might see transformed lives among our community, and that we might send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. That is our mission statement. As I mentioned earlier, you can find it very easily, readily accessible right here in our bulletins on the front page. That's why we exist. That's what we are about. We want to love God and we want to love our neighbors. And we want to engage in the process of disciple making whereby individual lives and therefore family lives and our, the life of our community as well, that, that these lives are transformed. And not just here in Rinkin, but everywhere around the world. That's why we spend so much time each week in the pastoral prayer praying for churches outside of this community and in missions works that are being done, either directly by us or by other churches with whom we are associated. 
right? We, we want lives to be transformed, but that, that raises a question when we say we want to see transformed lives. Well, what do we mean by transformed? What we mean by transformed is that we want our character to be steadily reflecting the character of Jesus. Specifically today, what we will see is that we want, what that means is that we want our minds, our desires, and our wills to be increasingly oriented around Christ. But before we get there, just want to make sure we're all clear on where we're at in this series. So this is just the second sermon in this five-part series. And and as I said last week, we, we've spent, the elders and deacons in particular, have spent a long time, really almost a, really over a year now, and considering the convictions of this church regarding discipleship. And, and as we've gone, we've been able to bring some more people in, bring in some, some members to begin asking this question. And what we believe is that now, having spent a year in this process asking the question about discipleship here at Redeemer Baptist Church, we believe now is the time to set before you a clear and concise vision for what discipleship is. Now, it specifically is here at RBC. Now, you could say it's just because it just happened that way. We spent a year and now we're talking about it. But when we think about the life of our church and everything that happened last year and the pastoral transition and everything, that we're, we're at a place now, we're growing as a church, that people are moving to our area, that we are engaging with people that we know. Like We need to know what that means to be disciples here. What does it mean to show up on a Sunday morning at Redeemer Baptist Church? or Wednesday night, or some other time for a discipleship group. What are these things? What does it mean to, to be disciples of Jesus here in this community? And because of the things that have been going on, we think this is now the time to, to ask and to answer these, these questions. right? Some of you have been here for, for a long time. Some of you have, are, have just gotten here either today or a few weeks ago, but whatever the case is, we hope that with this series that, that we want, when we're done, that all of us, especially if we're buying into to RBC here and we're committed here, we want to have a renewed passion for making disciples of Jesus. And we want to have an enlightened understanding about how to actually do that. So last week we began with the question, why do we make disciples? You can find the, the shorthand answer for that in, in the insert in your bulletin. Uh, this first question here, why do we make disciples? We, I preached a sermon, a whole sermon on that from Revelation 7 last week. And so that's summarized there. And this document, as a, again, as I mentioned last week, it is our attempt to summarize the basics of discipleship here at RBC. It's not a, it's not a perfect document. There's always more things that could be said and it may not be in its exact final form now, but it is our best attempt at present to summarize what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus here at Redeemer Baptist Church. And so last week we looked at uh, what is a disciple, and we said that we want to extend the good news of Christ's redemption, rescue, and transformation of the world to people all over the world so that as many people as possible are brought into the fellowship of the triune God. And so we've oriented our, our motivation, right? We've, 
We've gotten this properly ordered motivation for discipleship in the first sermon. Well, now we need to ask the question, well, what do we mean by discipleship? What, who are we talking about? What is a disciple? So we're going to do that today, and in the coming weeks we're going to answer the questions, how are disciples made? And then who is involved in this process of disciple-making? And then lastly, where are disciples made? So why, what, how, who, where? Those are the guiding words for, our, this, for this series. And today, we're asking the what. What is discipleship? If we're going to talk about discipleship, we need to have it properly defined. And, and I think often there's a lot of confusion about what discipleship is and what a disciple of Jesus is. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus as his disciple? And so I want to unpack for you uh, the main elements of what we see uh, the Bible describing as what a disciple is. There's other texts we could go to. We're going to look at Ephesians 4 now. Other places you could go. I think this is a good one that hopefully will be evident uh, shortly. Let me read verses 17 through Uh, 5 verse 2. I'm going to outline the sermon and then we'll get to work. Paul says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, you have heard about Him and were you were taught Him, as the truth is in Jesus, sorry, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through uh, deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you seek the truth, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So there are three things that I want you to see with me in this text this morning about what discipleship is, what a disciple is. First, in verses 17 and 18, we see the disciple submits his thinking to Jesus. A disciple submits his mind to Jesus. Second, in verses 19 through 24, we will see that a disciple submits his desires to Christ, to Jesus. And third, in verses 25 through 32, we'll see that a disciple submits his will to Christ. So, submit our mind, our desires, and our will to Christ. Verses 17 and 18, then look with me in the first place where we see that discipleship means submitting our thinking or our minds to Jesus Christ. 
Now, before we look specifically at what Paul says here, I want to note something that he doesn't say. Because perhaps um, the, the critical clo- thinker, the, 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 the close observer in the room is thinking this. Pastor, Paul doesn't, he doesn't use the word disciple here. He doesn't talk about discipleship explicitly. And so why are you using this text to talk about discipleship? Well, it's because specifically in verse 20, he speaks of learning Christ. He says that is not the way you learned Christ. And the word disciple in its barest essence means learner or student. So Paul, when he he says here that he talks about learning Christ, he is absolutely thinking about discipleship. Jesus says in Luke 6, 39, that a disciple, once he is fully trained, will be like his master. So the idea of Christian discipleship, the big idea of Christian discipleship is that we are learning Christ, being trained by Christ, and therefore becoming like Christ. And so what is it that Paul thinks about and says about discipleship here in Ephesians 4? What does it mean to learn Christ? Well, as we said, the first thing we see is that it means submitting our minds to Christ. It means submitting our desires to Christ, our wills to Christ. And here in Ephesians 4, Paul has shifted in the letter. He shifted from the, 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 the heavy theological to the really, really practical. He's given the indicatives of the gospel in the first three chapters, and now he's he's shifted a bit to put it into application, into practice. So far, leading up to chapter 4, he said things like this. He said, God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has put all things in subjection to Christ. He has saved us by grace through faith in Christ so that we might walk in good works that God has prepared us. For us, he said that he has united Jews and Gentiles through the death of Christ. He has made us a temple holy to the Lord, a dwelling place for God's Spirit. He said he has revealed in Christ the mystery of the gospel that was hidden in ages past, namely, that Jews and Gentiles together are fellow heirs of the promise through faith in Christ. And then at the end of chapter 3, he's moved with all of this theology. He's moved to doxological prayer for this unified church. And then in chapter 4, he begins to urge this church toward obedience. He says in 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of this great gospel. And he highlights the unity of the church and the goal of church life. He says in verse 13, it's to attain the full unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He then instructs the church to build itself up in love. In verse 16. And then we get to our passage. And he highlights several major aspects of this new life that we have in Jesus as his people, as his followers. And first up, he addresses our thinking. He says, don't walk as the unsaved 
Gentiles do. He says, he says how, how do they walk? He wa- they walk in the futility of their minds. He says they, have a, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from God. Why? Because of ignorance. Due to a hardness of heart. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, you know already that the heart here is very much a description of what we think and not just what we feel. Three times he mentions something here that speaks to our thinking. That is, he speaks to what we know. In our, our discipleship document, we said this. We said the, the word disciple most essentially means student. Therefore, growing in sound doctrine is a crucial component of discipleship. But the student of Jesus does not just learn information from or about Jesus, but learns Jesus. This is our way of saying that the the learning that takes place here is not mere intellectual acquisition. Just gaining knowledge for knowledge's sake. The, The disciple is not simply taking notes from the teacher so that he can pass a test at the end of the class. The disciple learns Christ himself. Therefore, we wrote, discipleship involves repenting of wrong thinking and submitting our minds to Christ. So discipleship is about orienting our minds to Jesus. And that necessarily involves knowledge. You know, today, the word thinking is almost a dirty word in the American West. Especially, this is true, and this is especially true in many Christian circles. Doctrine, right? It, It the pursuit of doctrine, the pursuit of knowledge of the Scriptures is, is viewed perhaps at best as an unnecessary academic pursuit. Better left off to professors in the academy. But at worst, it's, it's viewed as something reserved for arrogant know-it-alls. Only the most self-righteous person would ever spend any time learning the Bible and the the deep doctrines of it is at least what's implied, though maybe not always explicitly said. Feelings tend to rule the day in much of Western Christianity. For instance, about 10 years ago, I was watching the live stream of a major Christian conference for pastors. And one of the speakers in his talk, he argued very emphatically uh, for the use of charismatic gifts in ministry. And I, I didn't think it was a good argument, but he did nonetheless. But one of the questions that came in during the Q&A in this conference was something like this. He said, okay, pastor, I agree. The, the man who wrote it in said, I agree that my church should be pursuing these things, meaning speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing, and all that. But then he says, well, how do I bring it to my church? How do I, how do I share this with my church? And and this is what the, the pastor who had given this talk, this is what he said. He said, tell them how you feel. They can argue with your theology, but they cannot argue with your experience. I quit watching pretty much immediately. <laughs> when he wasn't booed off the stage, run off. I mean, if you're going to try to change something in the life of your church, shouldn't Shouldn't it begin with something like this? 
hey, here's what the Bible says. Now, if it's not obvious, if we're clear, I, I don't believe that if you tell your church what the Bible says, you'll arrive at this pastor's conclusions about, about the charismatic gifts. But I, I did at least hope that, that he would have based his practice of such things on, on what he believed the Bible to say and not merely on his own personal experience. And yet that is exactly what he apparently did and exactly what he instructed this pastor to do in his church. Go with what you feel, go with what you have experienced, and don't worry about what the Bible says. Because you can argue about that, but they can't argue with what you feel. So, Redeemer Baptist Church, I beg you, if I ever breathe such nonsense, fire me and find someone else to preach in this pulpit. We don't want to walk in ignorance of understanding. We, we want to know, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? What is actually there? What is true? Our thinking must be shaped by what the Bible actually says. Doctrine isn't an ugly word. I understand. We can beat doctrine to death, and we can be very unkind and unloving in the way that we talk about it, but there is a way to genuinely, graciously discuss doctrine that doesn't lead to sinful words and feelings and actions. So what we think, what we know, what we believe is absolutely crucial in Christian discipleship. But that's not all that's crucial, according to Paul here. Look with me in the second place in verses 19 through 24, where we see that Christian discipleship involves submitting our desires to Christ. If thinking speaks to what we know, desires speak to what we love. Look at what he says. He says there is a callousness due to sensuality and a greediness to practice every kind of impurity. I, I think that verse there, verse 19, it, it addresses our wills there as well. But, but in this word greedy especially, think about it. What is greed? What is this greediness to what he, he speaks? There is a desire there. A desire for what? Every kind of impurity. But then down in verse 22, he's, he, Paul says very plainly that this former manner of life that we are to be putting off is corrupt through what? What does he say? Corrupt through deceitful desires. Here's what we said about desire in our discipleship document. Learning Jesus leads to loving Jesus. Discipleship does not just mean loving the one followed, but also loving what the one followed loves. Christian discipleship means raising our affection for Jesus and for what and whom he loves. It means loving God supremely and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In our fallen nature, we often love the wrong things. Or love the right things the wrong way. So as disciples of Jesus, the call upon us is to repent of wrong loving and submit our desires to Christ. Learning Christ, according to Paul in verse 20, leads to a renewal of our desires. 
We see this interplay between these things, thinking and loving. Right? He says, corrupt desires need to give way to a renewal of mind, which then leads to better desires. Righteous desires. Holy desires. Learning Christ leads to loving Christ. And so, let me ask you this. Do you love Christ? Are your desires patterned after His? Have you put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness? Whether you are the oldest person in here or the youngest person in here, the question to you is, do you love Jesus? And are you orienting your desires around His? As I said earlier, Christianity in the West has largely become a feelings-exclusive religion. And that's a bad thing. But it's also bad to view Christianity as a thinking-exclusive religion. If your Christianity is devoid of feeling and you tend to shy away from terms like desire and love, you have a problem. Christianity is not mere just keeping up knowledge. Christianity isn't an academic exercise. It isn't an exam. It's not simply knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, but love builds up. What you love or what you want, what you desire, is just as important as what you think and what you know. We all know people, perhaps have been or are those people that that are very knowledgeable about Jesus, but have very little love for Jesus. Perhaps even worse, want nothing to do with Jesus. And so, kind of tying those two together about knowing and loving, our our knowing isn't just, it's not cold knowing. It's it's, it's fueled by desire, but our desire isn't blind desire. It's guided by what we know. And so we we want to bring those things together to be renewed in His likeness, as Paul says at the end of 24, in true righteousness and holiness. And that brings us to a third point about our, our wills. Where we need to submit our wills to Christ, and we see that Verses 25 through 32. If thinking speaks to what we know, desire speaks to what we want, will speaks to what we choose. Here's how we put it in the insert for discipleship. We said loving Jesus requires that we do what he commands. So learning Jesus leads to loving Jesus leads to obeying Jesus. The disciple knows his or her teacher and sets the teacher in the center of his or her affections. The disciple also takes orders from the teacher. The disciple doesn't set the agenda but follows the plan and path set by the teacher. The disciple wants to live in the world how the teacher lives in it. The disciple wants his or her thinking feeling, and choosing to be conformed to that of the teacher. Discipleship, therefore, means repenting of wrong choices and submitting our wills to Christ through obedience and imitation. So what are the things, friend, that you actually choose? How do you 
How do you conduct your life in light of what you know and what you love? Paul tells us in these verses what effect our thinking and loving should have on our choices. Briefly, we'll, we'll, we'll look at some of these things he says here in verses 25 through 32. In verse, starting in verse 25, he says that the disciple who knows and loves Jesus will put away falsehood. And more than that, what does he say? He says the disciple of Jesus is not content simply not to lie. The disciple actually commits to the truth. The liar who becomes a disciple of Jesus chooses the truth over the lie. It's not just a putting off of falsehood, but a putting on of the truth. Likewise, the disciple of Jesus um, will choose not to let his conflicts brew and boil and stew for long periods of time. Verse 26, right? He settles with his accuser quickly. He refuses to let the sun go down in his anger, meaning that he deals with it in a speedy manner. Christian discipleship, therefore, looks like timely conflict resolution. The thief, in verse 28, the thief, when his knowledge of Christ has produced great love for Christ and for his people, the thief is then prompted to wholehearted obedience to Christ, and he gives up what? Theft. He stops stealing. And he gives up the covetousness that leads to theft. And beyond that, right, it's not just that stop stealing. That isn't what he does. What is it? He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather, what? Let him labor. But he doesn't even stop there. Because you could stop stealing as a thief. You could say, okay, I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm just going to work hard for what's mine. I'm not going to take it from you dishonestly. I'm going to get it honestly by hard work. But I'm still very focused on myself. Paul says, no, no, no. Labor with honest work with your own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. The thief puts off theft and puts on hard work and generosity. Right? You put off the former way of stealing, put on the new way of working hard and being generous. In verse 29, when we see what we see here is that the contentious person, the person who is prone to strife and quarrels, this person now, as a disciple of Jesus, chooses to speak with not corrupting talk, but talk that is good for building up. Talk that fits the occasion. Talk that gives grace to those who hear. And then Paul inserts this reminder. He says, you actually grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption when you fail to conform your wills to Christ. And so we, so we strive against Him in this work when we allow our choices to return to the influence of the old man. We strive against God when we allow our choices to return to be under the influence of the old man who has been crucified with Christ. He, then he lists some more fruit that should be born in a disciple's life as he commits his will to Christ. Discipleship of Jesus means no more bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Instead, it means kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. What a big word there. 
Because we can talk about all the ideals of what discipleship is. This is. These are what disciples do. Disciples are kind, and they're not bitter and wrathful, and they're not angry. They don't slander, or they don't have any malice. And then we like, you look at your own heart and you think, yeesh. But we're a forgiven and a forgiving people as well for when we fail. And then he, he sums it all up in 5, 1 and 2. He says, imitate God. What is discipleship but imitate God? Walk in love. And he says, and you know what love is based on how Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Now, technically, he goes on uh, in the rest of the letter to describe what Christian discipleship looks like. And that's the whole rest of Ephesians. But I had to cut the text, sermon text off somewhere. And so this seemed like a good place to do it rather than just preach the whole rest of the book. But here is a quick snapshot summary of what he says. He says that the disciples of Jesus, those who have learned Christ, who submit their mind, their desires, and their wills to Jesus, um, in 5, 3 through 21, they essentially they learn to be distinct from unbelievers. There is a difference in our living. Then we commit to God-given roles within marriage. We raise our children to fear the Lord. We work hard and and fairly, whether we are a master or a servant. And finally, at the very end in chapter 6, 10 through 20, he says we, we prepare for battle, for spiritual warfare. So there it is. Christian discipleship simply is the process by which a person is led to submit his thinking, desires, and will to Jesus. And of course, it all is done in faith and repentance. And more on that last part in just a moment, but let me, let me land the plane this way. How are you doing with that? Do you allow your thoughts to run in the dark? Or do you bring them into submission to Christ? Do you take every thought captive, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do you drag your thoughts out into the light or do you allow them to stay in the dark? Well, then how, how are your thoughts impacting your desires? Do you see how what you think about, what you regularly contemplate, what you regularly meditate upon, what you regularly think, do you see how that influences what you want and how you feel? What do you want? What, what are the things that you want, friend? Do you want the things of the kingdom? Or do you want the things of the earth? Do you want eternal things? Or temporal things? Right? And based on those desires, the things that you want, what do you actually choose to do and to say? Do you choose things that please God or things that dishonor God? So our thinking affects our, desire, our, our, our loving, in, which affects our choosing, but it, it also kind of runs the other way as well. We need, to, we need to see that our desires and our choices affect our thinking. Right? If you are infected with greedy desire for what is impure, that is corrupting your thinking. 
And so they all influence one another. They all have an effect on one another. Thinking, desiring, and and choosing. And they all need to be renewed in righteousness and holiness. Submitted to King Jesus. As we said, in faith and repentance. And so, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, right? If you don't believe in Jesus, I'm I'm glad you're here this morning. And And I want to invite you to follow Jesus. And it all begins with faith. Notice what Paul says in the first part of chapter 4. He says in verse 5, it begins with faith. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Grace was given, which brings forth faith. So, have you believed in Jesus? If, If not, I pray that you would. I pray that you would commit your life to Him, submitting your mind, your desires, and your will to the gentle Master who loves sinners like you, that you might be rescued from the darkness, from the depravity, from the judgment that sin brings. And let us all remember, and here I'm thinking specifically brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember with gratitude None of us does this perfectly. I I talked about that just a few minutes ago, about the importance of forgiveness. but, But the fact that we are imperfect disciples is exactly why Jesus came. It's not that you're a sinner and then you become a perfect follower of Jesus. It's that you're a sinner all the way through, increasingly being made like Jesus, we pray, as we follow Him. And so we need to remember, like we began, these imperatives that Paul gives to put off, put off, put off, put on, put on, put on. All of it comes after Paul boasting for three straight chapters about the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. And then he inserts a reminder here, even in this text, in 5.2. Walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So have you failed miserably in your pursuit of discipleship? Fret not, dear friend. Jesus saves failures. Amen.